Well, anytime Thomas Moore is in town, I immediately importune him to come in here to these studios and talk to me. Uh, this happened once before. Uh, I've interviewed him many other times in other contexts. It's always interesting. It's always good for me, I think. Um, uh, the work that he does is always work that feels like it, it could touch my life. Uh, his new book is A Re- Religion of One's Own. Uh, he's here in Hartford today visiting St. Francis Hospital. What are you doing at St. Francis today? I'm giving two talks. Actually, I gave one already to some staff members, and then this evening I'm giving a public talk on this book. Uh, okay. I've been I've been coming to St. Francis for quite a while and work with uh, uh, Reverend Mark McKinney there, who teaches pastoral counseling, mm-hmm. and uh, I, you know feel connected. Um, we're, we're glad that you do. We should say that we're recording this on Tuesday. You'll be, you'll be listening to it on Wednesday, so don't show up uh, at night at St. Francis Hospital looking for Thomas Moore because you will be 24 hours gone by then. Um, I want to begin with um, uh, one of the early things that you say in the book is that, that we all have souls and that our souls require religion. It's not an option, you say. And and you realize that for 20 percent of the people listening and, and maybe a larger percent of the people who listen to public radio, I've discovered, those are always almost fighting words. It's like, what do you mean I need religion? What do you mean it's not an option? I don't need religion. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you get that reaction. What's your response? I do. Well, I had have to say first that I mean religion in the way I'm defining it, which is very different from what most people think. I I hesitated to use the word religion in this book, like especially in the title, A Religion of One's Own. But I couldn't find that there was no, any other phrase just didn't quite work. And besides, uh, this is my field. I have a Ph.D. in religion. This I've, I've worked on this all my life. I like it. I like religion. But I think it should be uh, understood in a much deeper way than it usually is. So that's what I mean. The soul needs religion of some kind, but not necessarily the formal religion that that most people would think about. On the other hand, a person who considered him herself rejecting of religion would want to probe that claim a little bit. I mean, for example, to what degree or another is God involved? You talk in the book about how some of a religious practice can be almost aimed at losing the idea of God uh, or getting past the idea of God. I think you quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, on that. So, So to the person who says, no, I'm a confirmed atheist, secular humanist, whatever. Um, Is there a conversation that you can still have with that person? Sure. First of all, you don't need to use the word God. I think you'll find in my work I very rarely use the word God. In fact, I talk about that in this book. Um, On the other hand, I think the word can be used uh, carefully. Uh, To me, the the word God means to, in a sense, um, blow up any concepts you have. This is where the this is where I become a Zen Catholic, where the Zen Buddhism comes into my background. Mm-hmm. And I think the Zen Buddhists are trying to get to to help us think about the words we use habitually and say, you, you better be careful in use of those words and keep them open and empty. So that's what I mean. The word God can be used as long as it's kept open as a way to allow us to talk about the unknown and the mysterious and the infinite I guess even those words would be too much for some uh, humanists. But I don't think so. I think we can talk. I can think we can talk with each other. I think this book is, uh, should be one that the humanists would really enjoy. I think it is one that the humanists would really enjoy. And once, once, sometimes it is, I think, getting past that word, you know. I mean, the word religion just is just loaded up with certain kinds of meaning uh, for, uh, for a lot of people. Um, and, and maybe the best way for us to do this is to talk— 
specifically about some of the practices and things that you describe in the book, which often don't conform all that much to people's standard idea of religion. And and some of the people you talk about in the book, people like your friend James Hillman or, or Georgia O'Keeffe, people who might have been uncomfortable themselves with being described as religious. But you consider those people religious. You consider a person like James Hillman, with whom you had almost a lifelong dialogue about this, to be a religious person, even though he might not have. That's right. He may not have, although it's interesting, at the very end, I spent a fair amount of time with him at the end of his life, and at the very end, he's looked at me one day, and he said, all right, I've got to say it, I'm a pantheist. Mm -hmm. And uh, he never had said anything like that before, because that's even a form of religion. Mm -hmm. He never wanted to do that. But I I think he was religious, definitely, in my sense of the term. I think that you don't ha- certainly don't have to be a member or participate in any formal religion in order to be to be religious. But you do have to think about things and go deeper than usual. You don't just buy into the secularism around and the materialism around us. Uh, and I think if you do that, all you have to do in my definition is go beyond it. I, I like your reference there to uh, George O'Keefe because she didn't consider herself religious, but I think a lot of people would look at her art and say there's something there that pushes you, takes you somewhere beyond the surface. I think that's right, and I think that's uh, often a function of art. One of your chapters is devoted to the notion of mysticism, and you you argue on behalf of a kind of everyday mysticism, one that doesn't necessarily involve a flaming sword in the sky or any of the kind of standard iconography that we associate with mysticism, but can be just sort of a sense of self-loss. And I, I, I think we all experience that. If we're going to experience art, particularly the fine arts anyway, we're going to experience that. I have this weird relationship with the uh, painter Odilon Redon. And, and you, I always say, you walk me into a room of still lifes and without telling me anything, and I'll walk right over to the Redon. And I don't know why that is. And so I was down in New Haven last weekend, and he's got these nasturtiums. And they're just kind of flowing out of whatever pot they're in, and they're kind of flowing into this very nonspecific orange background. And uh, you, one does, probably in the same way that you uh, interact with O'Keefe, after a while, if you look at it long enough, it's not so much you. It's There's something else going on. Actually, I respond better to Redon than to O'Keefe <laughs> uh, because I think he does have a, have a, uh, the mystery element is even stronger in him. Mm-hmm. And he's not as sentimental maybe that, as O'Keefe can be sometimes. Mm-hmm. So he, he puts your nose in it. He kind of really puts you into that mysteriousness and the color and the, the shapes that he has. And so, yeah, I think I'm drawn through the art into a a brief mystical experience. I'm taken away from myself. And that's all I ask for. I don't demand anything more than that because I think when you you multiply these experiences over time and make them part of your life, then gradually you shape what I would call a religious practice, not just spiritual. It's, It's because it, 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 it does for you what a formal religion might do for somebody else. And, and so the artist, um, if, if you're having a successful relationship with the artist, it does seem as though the artist is investigating what sometimes in theology we call noumena, right? The, the notion that there's something present in a physical thing, something that is more than the physical thing. Yes. If, yes. The, the, the numinous is, is – it doesn't have to be otherworldly. You don't have to have that that understanding of it it's just it's just the understanding that the that life the world we live in 
is richer, more layered, more has more mystery in it than some people would care to to accept. So I think that that's really the dividing line for me. Uh, I I I want to have an experience of life that is not flat. It's not one dimensional. I just certainly don't want to buy into the secularism of our time, where everything has to be measured, and you have to. Uh, I guess it's basically a materialistic world. I don't want to live in that world. But I don't want to live in that supernatural world either where you think you understand and can point to and label things that are beyond this world. I don't want to do that either. So the religion that I want for myself, I don't demand it of anybody else, for myself is a natural world, but it's a world where uh, I account for the mysterious. I don't, I don't mean I explain it. I mean that I, I give it a place. And so back to um, the distinction between, assuming that there is going to be one, the distinction between you and your friend uh, James Hillman, both psychotherapists, um, and, and it seems as though he he fits your your definition of religious in, uh, I'm going to call it sort of, he's, he's uh, uh, a Hamlet uh, practitioner of religion in the sense that he believes that there are more things on heaven and earth than are dreamt in our philosophies. Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Not only that, but in... In his major book, Revisioning Psychology, he has a a section of it where he says, is this psychology religious? Mm. And he explores it. Now, he may say no, but in fact, I think if you look at that closely, I end up saying yes, because uh, he takes religious images seriously. For him, particularly the Greek gods and goddesses were important for him. He also was, uh, 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 also, he also admired D.H. Lawrence, who I think also fits in this area because many many of uh, D.H. Lawrence's poems um, invite us to look at ordinary experiences and see the numinous there. For example, he he has a, he has some poems where more than one where he talks about being on a beach and watching people walk out of the water, and he says something like "Lo, God is born" or something like that. Mm-hmm. The, the God comes when you see people. So it. You're looking at an ordinary situation, but suddenly you realize there's so much depth, there's so much going on there. It's full of mystery. And it relates somehow to the to the old religious text, too, because there were stories about Aphrodite coming out of the water. So, And he knew all those. D.H. Lawrence mm-hmm. knew that. Hillman read Lawrence. I have read him. And many, many writers like him. I would put Rilke, Raina Maria Rilke, in the same uh area, same sphere. I put Whitman in there, too. Yeah, absolutely. Whitman, too. Uh, Because he sees, he may not use the word God very often, if at all, but he sees, just in the same way that you're describing, Lawrence seeing the people coming out of the water, he sees that all the time, right? He does. Every person he sees contains some idea of what he would call divinity. The body electric, I think, is a a religious poem. Uh, Whitman, definitely. And I would put Emily Dickinson in the same category. Because she has so many poems about finding divinity and not being... In fact, she explicitly says, it's not in church, it's outside of church. That's where he finds, she finds her church, in a way. I mean, that's, I think you could summarize it that way. Mm-hmm. So, oh, I have so many places I want to go from here. But for, so there's a kind of an interesting um, paradox uh, of timing here. I'm talking to you on Tuesday. This show will run on Wednesday. I believe that's the same day that Richard Dawkins is appearing at the University of Connecticut, not too far from here. So what we now have in, in people like Dawkins and the late Christopher Hitchens, and uh, uh, there's sort of a group of other people who are almost at the, doing in atheism what 
uh, preachers in, in in the Great Awakening did in New England. <laughs> they were traveling around preaching the kind of non-gospel. Uh, right. Atheism used to be sort of kind of more of a passive thing, or at least perceived as more of a passive thing. Now it's actually sort of a message that various people want to get out. Um, what's your reaction to that? I'd love to have a debate with him yeah. or people like him because – I suspect, I mean, I, I think I'm probably making this too simple, but mm. I suspect that someone like Dawkins, mm. I think Christopher Hitchens certainly did it, were, were taking the, the easy way by taking, uh, understanding religion as this literalistic, uh, rather simple-minded approach mm. to the to the great mysteries of life. Uh, I don't see... I mean, that's that. I can criticize that. In fact, in this book, I say I have a lot of atheism in me. Mm-hmm. My notion of religion has atheism in it because I think any mystic has got to have some atheism where you say, neti neti, it's not that, it's not that. You know, it's not that what you're talking about is uh, is not anything that you can point to or you can define or use language for, especially when you're talking about divinity. So uh, I don't see that there's a there's a really heavy line between... Uh, a rather open-minded uh, atheism and an open-minded approach to religion, at least what I'm trying to do. They're very close to each other. Um, you know, it's interesting that you work, uh, I mean, you've done many things in your life and obviously written The Care of the Soul uh, uh, and Dark Nights of the Soul and this new book, A Religion of One's Own. Uh, you were uh, a monk for 16 years, I think. 13 years. 13 years. 13 years a monk. You're, uh, but you're a psychotherapist. It's one of the yes. things that you do. And uh, Like James Hillman, you're a psychotherapist. Yes. And so not too long ago, I saw the play Freud's Last Session which imagines this encounter between C.S. Lewis and Freud. Mm-hmm. Have you seen this play? I haven't. I've okay. heard of it. I haven't seen it. I found it very unsatisfying. I mean, it, it's sort of, but I also would wonder how you would feel about it. I mean, so it, it imagines this dialogue between the younger Lewis uh, and the older uh, Freud. Uh, and Freud is near the end, very near the end of his life. And so he's very much the man writing Future of an Illusion and, and Moses and Monotheism and books like that, books that are explicitly rejecting a religion. And and, and then Lewis is who he is, obviously. You know, this he's young, he's idealistic, he's Christian. He, he, even in the um, Oxbridge world that he's inha- inhabiting, it's not entirely the most fashionable thing to be, even at that moment, intellectually. And I didn't like to play that much because I thought it really stacked the deck in favor of Freud and didn't really give it's, – it's funny because Freud says at one point that in Paradise Lost, the devil has all the good lines. Well, in this play, he has all the good lines. Uh-huh. Um, but – it, it is interesting that the so-called father of psychoanalysis, and I know you're much more a Jungian than a Freudian, but the father of psychoanalysis is so emphatically opposed to religion, at least towards the end of his life. And that must be an interesting heritage for you as a psychotherapist. Well, it is. I, I appreciate Freud's work very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I'm more Jungian than Freudian. I think I well, you cite you Freud. cite Jung in your work a lot more. I than do, you say I do. Yes, yeah. it's true. Um, but I think that yes, Freud Freud has two faces, just as Jung does. And part of Freud, you can read a lot of Freud that lo- allows you to re- to find this deep religion that I'm trying to describe mm-hmm. in this book. Freud can take you there because. First of all, he sees through so much. Mm-hmm. He is able to see through layer upon layer of narrative. And if you do that enough, I think really you're getting very close to, to a re- theology rather than psychology. So um, 
I appreciate Freud doing that. I don't know why he had to make this simplistic notion that a father is a projection of your own personal father. I don't, I don't buy that. Uh, I, there may be a little of that in, in religion, but I don't think there's much of it. I, I really don't. I'm not interested in that. So I, I wonder, I mean, I don't know this play, but what you just said makes me wonder, if I go to see it, if, um, if Freud is presented then representing this, 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 this critical view of religion uh, that's easy. It's too easy. It's the atheist that's too easy. I think I think the atheist has to have to get a hold of the the mystics and and the good literature, the good theology, and see if they, what they do with that. Well, I, my complaint was I never heard the speech from Lewis that I wanted to hear. Which and one of the speeches I wanted to hear is, all right, what if you're right and I'm wrong? Um, because there's a lot of that sort of Pascal type talk between the two of them. What if you're right and I'm wrong? Even so. I've actually embraced something that's allowed me to see beauty in life and to take comfort uh, in life and to face life in a very enriched way. The suggestion that this is an empty exercise because one of its sort of basic fundaments might not be true doesn't necessarily make a case for discarding the entire exercise of what I'm doing. He never really says that. And to me, that that's – I mean, I'm sitting here very spiritually estranged and, and wanting some kind of experience like that. And I think that's one of the cases to be made. Well, what I do is I try to speak to both the, a person who is who is uh, considers himself a humanist atheist, certainly to the person who's seeking that doesn't know, doesn't have a position, and even to the person within a, chur- a church tradition, because I think that you can bring this notion of a deeper religion that has some Zen emptiness in it and a little bit of atheism in it, that uh, you can bring that to any of these places. We all need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it, that We all need that, that kind of a religion. So um, I think this is really, in a way, something that we haven't considered before, although I have to say that this book of mine really does come f- directly from Emerson's Divinity School Address, mm-hmm. 1835. That's a long way back. Yeah. The book began, really, for me, I was thinking, I was thinking of writing about uh, Henry David Thoreau because Thoreau uh, uh, felt that uh, many of the secular, ex- if you want to call them that, experiences he had or practices he had, like he talks about taking a bath mm-hmm. or doing ordinary simple things in life, he sees them as sacramental. Mm. Well, that's pretty good because that fits per- my notion of what religion ought to be. Yeah, no. The, even the the passage you quote, where he's just talking about sitting um, and and just being aware of everything around him, sounds very yogic too. Obviously, but um, all right, we're gonna take a quick break. Otherwise, we'll just talk and talk and talk. We'll take a really quick break. We're talking to Thomas More. The book is a religion of one's own. We'll be back after this.
All right, I'm here with uh, Thomas Moore, his new book, his newest book, A Religion of One's Own. So I want to talk about some of the practical, well, some of the practices really that you describe in your book that are useful to you. And there are times when I'm reading this book and I'm very envious. I think, I wish I were Thomas More. Uh, and one of the times is this description of what you did for a while on Sundays uh, in your living room where you would rearrange the furniture and, and have people come in, your own family and, and outside people. I'll let you pick up the story from there. Just We just got inspired one day. I don't know why, but maybe because we had so many neighbors that were close to us and um, – we, did, we got inspired to invite people to come over to our house and have a sort of Sunday ritual. Mm. And I had, yeah, I've, you know, I was a monk for 13 years. I learned a lot from that. And, mm. and uh, so I put together a ritual that was probably based in the early notion of what, uh, what a Christ, the Christian or the Catholic Mass was. The gathering, gathering people together, we read some scriptures and we read scriptures from many different traditions, which is common today, and from secular literature. This is a point, by the way, that I don't often always find. Uh, in my Ph.D. studies in religion, we understood that so-called secular literature was as religious as any other literature. Mm-hmm. We were just talking about Whitman and Mm-hmm. And Dickinson you, and people you talk, like you talk that. About, you talk about Beckett in your book, yeah, which many Beckett. people would find an unlikely place to go. Oh, no. There have been but, many books written about Beckett from a theological point of view. I mm-hmm. think he really does take us to the to the bones, you know, right down to mm-hmm. asking the basic questions. I've always loved Beckett since I was in my teens. I've really loved him. I almost had a chance to meet him once. So it was. he's been an important figure for me. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying, I guess, is that we, we gathered and we had this structure where we, we had some music and we we read these texts from many different sources, and then we had a discussion of the texts, including children. It was very important for me that we have the children involved and engaged, and also part of the discussion. And we had animals around quite a bit. I remember that. And then uh, we had a, we, we used some uh, bread and wine and... and uh, and then ended with some poetry from uh, often I take it from the, from Ireland because of my connections to Ireland and I particularly like the Celtic way of putting nature and the spirit together. So we did that quite also Native American uh, poetry. We'd end with that. It wasn't very long, mm-hmm. uh, but it meant a lot for people. And I meet people today, and they say that those those events, those things we did, were very really important. They didn't they don't know how to describe them, but they were important to them. Yeah, no, I I was so envious reading them, and I was thinking because of everything that you just said, particularly that notion. I mean, one of the notions that that runs through this book is the notion of discarding rigid dichotomies between what's spiritual and what's not spiritual, and also rigid boundaries among different faiths and practices. I mean, that second thing is, I mean, neither one of them is an entirely new idea. The second thing is not that new an, an idea, but one of the terms that you use, I think, is new. You, I mean, what the, one of the criticisms of this idea that somehow or other um, you could be, you could b- borrow things from Taoism and meld it with your Christianity and elements of Buddhism and Greek myth and Judaism. So the the disparaging term is a cafeteria Christian or something like that, or a, a smorgasbord person or something that you're just going down the line, scooping out a little bit of each thing uh, to suit your taste and placing it on the plate and arranging it the way that you like it. The term you want to replace that with is conviviality, right? Yes, it is conviviality. So conviviality means to live together. It often suggests eating together. So that's a form of, you know, getting back to that food metaphor. 
I think, though, based on my own experience, that taking some something from various traditions doesn't have to be superficial. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I've I've spent years and years uh, reading about Zen Buddhism, uh, talking to Zen priests and teachers. I never entered a monastery, a Zen monastery. I didn't. I've, I had done the monastery thing. I didn't want to do that. But I did expose myself in, in all these different ways to to Zen Buddhism, and it has affected me, basically, you know, from profoundly in my view in my own spiritual life. And the same I could say for others too. Uh, I've been very much influenced by Sufism, and by um, uh, certainly ancient Greek spirituality, often called mythology, which mm. I think is a misnomer. Um, but uh, I've been very much affected by that, and that's Hillman was too, and that's I think where he and I had a lot to share in common because I think he also was very much affected by what the Greeks imagined religion to be, and uh, so I see this. The Greeks have taught me to see the holy everywhere, mm-hmm. and not to have to see certain parts of life as secular and certain parts as sacred. Uh, they were they were able to include everything. You know, many of those early Greek teachers said that the world is full of gods. Uh, we're talking to Thomas More. His book is A Religion of One's Own. So you say it doesn't have to be superficial. One of the ways that you argue for keeping it not superficial um, is a practice uh, you refer to by an old name, Lectio Divina. Uh, in, in some detail, or at least with some specificity, explain what you mean by this practice and how a person listening to this show could could add it to their lives. Well, this is just one of the things that I mentioned in this book that you can you can adopt in your own way. You don't have to do it the way it was taught in the Middle Ages. You can ad- take it in your own way. It's it's a form of reading that is different stages. So you read a text. It could be a long by say t- when I say text, I mean it could be a page or two. It could be a line. It could be a book, and you read it, but you don't read it for information. So your your attitude is different. Mm-hmm. You don't just try to get information out of it. You don't read it for entertainment like you would maybe a mystery story, something like that. You read it rather as a spiritual practice, and you read it reflectively, meditatively. And after you read it, you take a little time to let it sink in. So you, you reflect on it, me- contemplate it, meditate on it. Uh, in some instances of Lexio Divina, what you do is you consider how you might apply it in your life. That's one another stage that some people might have. And uh, at the very end, then, what you do is you kind of go into your own meditative state and just let things happen. Like the, the consequence of your reading now is that you're not going to try to do anything, but you, you'd, be, you'd be quiet, quiet your mind for a while and just see what develops or just let it come in even without any inter- interference from you at all. Now, that kind of reading is, is very, and a very interesting way of meditation. And it, uh, it suggests a different relationship to words and to, to books. And I think part of the key of it also is that it could be a rather small amount of text, right? I think one of the things people think is, oh, I've got to tackle all of Teilhard de Chardin or something. Oh, no. <laughs> no, usually Lexio Divina, I mean, very often it's just reading a line, a sentence or two at most. Um, we're talking to Thomas Moore. Uh, his book is A Religion of One's Own. I want to just uh, pounce on one of the things that you said there before about sort of um, how one contemplates the text afterwards. Um, one of the things that, um, that that surfaced in your book that I, I think is um, 
a knife's edge for a lot of people is the notion of with no notion of gain. That when uh, when we practice religion, when we approach religion, um, ideally we do it with no notion of gain, uh, without thinking of the thing that we're trying to get out of it. But that strikes me as a really almost a conundrum. You know, I mean. How how can we possibly erase from our minds the idea that we really are hoping to derive something? Why would we be doing this if we didn't think we were going to derive something out of it? Well, I mean, the easy answer to that is that you can start out at the very beginning mm. with some kind of intention. Mm. Now, my spiritual practices, I'm hoping that it will become a better, deeper, more aware person from it. That mm. might be there. But then as you go along you realize you have to shed one thing after another because all of these intentions that you have get in the way. Mm-hmm. And especially, as I've been saying so much now, the Zen Buddhist especially was going to tell you to to drop those intentions and don't if that that if you're self-conscious about that whole process and if you have very specific uh, gains that you want, then you, you've lost from the very beginning. So you could look at it that way. Actually, for myself, though, uh, to me, the I, I would skip the first part and just say, if you want to get it, really do this properly. You have to, you, you have to give up the notion of getting anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not about progress. In this realm, it's not the same as ordinary life. You, you don't go from one place to another and get better at it. You simply are with it, and the 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 closer you get to letting go of those goals and those needs and intentions, the the more you will fulfill what they're all about. So, Thomas Moore, the subtitle of your book is A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality in a Secular World. And in a way, every every one of these words for you, I think, is pretty loaded and and, and worthy of kind of un, a lot of unpacking. Uh, so it's, it's, it's nerve-wracking to say a word like spirituality without having a 30-minute right. conversation about how that's different from work of the soul, uh, which I think is a very different thing for you. But are you concerned at all? As, I, I'm, as I'm reading the book, one of the things I'm thinking is you're very open to a lot of things, a lot of different kinds of practices and experiences amounting to religious practices. And, and, you know, when you're talking about that or everyday mysticism, um, you know, it could be this, it could be that. It could be a lot of things that maybe don't strike strike the average person as works of religion or acts of religion, but they could be. Are you worried at all about losing the shape, though, of of the category of the subject you're talking about? In other words, if so many things can be understood to be religion, if if chopping some greens up on, on a woodblock can be understood to be part of religion, are we starting to lose track of the subject itself? I guess that's a danger, although I, I don't worry about it. I, I, I don't worry so much about all these things. Uh, <laughs> I, a lot of people do, but I, it doesn't bother me. Uh, because my idea is that whatever your thought is, if you if you allow yourself some mystical experiences, like, let's say, going to the ocean with some regularity, mm. I'm not just saying you have these experiences. I'm suggesting that I think the religions teach that we need a method. We, we need, we need to, uh, all these things kind of hold together. That's what a religion is. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a piecing together of tapestry of various practices and points of view. So if you have your own practices, let's say, okay, you go to the ocean with some regularity, and your intention is 
to do something for your inner life or your spiritual life or whatever, to make to become a, a person somehow. Well, that intention is going to, and you do a lot of things, is going to then help you see that there's a fabric here. There are a lot of things going on. They're not just separate experiences. And that's what I would say satisfies this need for a religion in the old sense. We used to go to church because the churches put everything together for us mm-hmm. and served it as a piece. And that's a difference. Spirituality can be just having one experience after another. Religion has a little more form to it. Mm. But I don't think it has to be created intentionally. Uh, and I'm not worried that we're going to lose a sense of religion. In fact, I think we'll gain it because this is these are much deeper experiences. They really touch you and they become important. And over time, whether you call it that or not, they will become a fabric of experiences that will hold your spiritual life together and give it some concreteness. I mean, I I think another way of talking about that, and I think it's something that you encounter a lot, I sense it's a thing that you encounter a lot in your psychotherapy practice, is that, uh, I mean, I'm a baby boomer. I'm from a generation of people who went to college and essentially shed whatever religious upbringing they had and, and, and absorbed an ethos that basically said, if you really want to be a modern human being, you really have to get rid of all this stuff um, and think more rationally and, and uh, you know, all the various verbal baggage that goes along with this. What's interesting now is that we're now moving into older age. Uh, I'm turning 60 this year. And, and I do think at this time, I do feel, I think we might, I might have even said this to you last time you were here, I feel ill-equipped. I, I don't feel as though I have, in all the ways that you were just saying, the right toolbox to fit the experiences of my life and and the the now growing immediacy of my death altogether, um, and I, I feel like not doing that work, not doing the work of the soul for most of my life, I'm I'm paying a pretty high price right now. And I'm I would guess as a therapist, you see a lot of people uh, from the baby boom generation and maybe the generations that follow who are walking into your office with a similar kind of problem. Yes, the first question I I would ask though is that worse than having a really clear uh, formal religion that you've been part of all your life, but it really hasn't touched you very deeply. That That's a situation that are a lot of people mm-hmm. are in as well. And it's worse because today a lot of people who have had the formal religion in their background and didn't go through that phase where they, they had to leave it, abandon it, those people have are angry uh, at, mm-hmm. at experiences they have had. A lot of people are very angry at what what happened to them in religion. And and for many, that religious experience was inadequate, although they still hang on to it because they don't want to be left dangling somewhere. So what I'm trying to do in this book especially is to say that that, uh, you don't don't need an external uh, net to hold it all together. You don't need that. Uh, what you need more is to allow yourself to have a lot of experiences that you would want, probably want anyway and understand that that can be as much um, a, re- a religion as, as the formal one that you had. And the other thing I want to say too about this, I haven't said yet, is that I have this tr- tremendous respect and love of the religious traditions. I am not against them in any way. But I think we need a new relationship to them, a freer relationship, and certainly not one where we feel obligated to to believe certain things because someone has told us. We need to get away from so many things that have been part of religion in the past. And 
And if we do that, I really think that we'll find a more joyous and more satisfying uh, solution to that problem of how do I deal with my death and age and the, my mortality and the shortness of life. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we've got one more segment here. Stay with us. Uh, Thomas Moore will be back after this. McEnroe, Buddha, Beckett, Loud, Say, Georgia, O'Keefe. Why don't you guys just get a room? Actually, that sounded weird. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our executive producer is Katie Talarski. The part of Bill Curry was played by Timothy Leary. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff practicing Wiccan gastronomy, visit our webpage, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, our salute to the Carpenters. And now... Back to Colin. Thomas Moore is here. His newest book uh, is A Religion of One's Own. Of course, you know him from Care of the Soul, Dark Nights of the Soul, uh, other books, many other books as well. Um, he's been visiting Hartford here on Tuesday. We're recording this on Tuesday, so you can't call in and ask Thomas Moore questions. I'm really sh- sorry about that, but uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. You're listening to it on Wednesday. And it's funny because as you're here on Tuesday, I'm, pre- I'm going to prepare you for this because you may even want to use it tonight at uh, St. Francis. Um, as you probably know, Connecticut is awash in basketball feelings. And uh, there was this kind of Thomas More moment, I think, for uh, the men's basketball team. It was in their penultimate game, their game um, that led up to the championship game uh, against – so they were playing Florida, and they were down 16-4 to at the beginning of the game. And their rather young coach called them over, and he had one of those dry erase boards, uh, uh, small dry erase boards, and he wrote on it, he just called them all over into a huddle for a timeout on the sidelines, and he wrote, "Even now, faith." That's all he wrote. Um, and actually, I mean, you, you can you can attribute it to it this or not, but they turned around the game right after that t- timeout, got back in the game, and won the game. And I mean, you really there's something very powerful about that. I mean, even now, faith. Uh, it almost feels like something that you. If I had to begin making my own religion, maybe that's a part of the liturgy, I would, I would put that in there. I mean, how many times in your life can you think of where even now faith is a great phrase? Oh, it's really important. I, I have my story of that. Uh, I was giving a talk somewhere, and uh, a woman came, uh, asked a question. There was a big audience. She asked a question on a microphone and mm-hmm. said that she had cancer, and she had two young children. And she didn't know what to do because she felt so bad about leaving her children behind. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had no way of dealing with it. So I talked to her about faith, and faith, and I said that you know faith is not just believing in some teachings from somewhere. Faith is really looking far enough into yourself and in, into life itself to be able to to deal with what what it, it has offered you, the challenge it has offered you. It sounds similar, only mm-hmm. at the level of game. Now I also happen to think that sports and games are very close to religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just gave a retreat last year in Ireland for golfers. You know the. 
playing golf as a as a sacred game, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of people wonder about me. But I, I do think that uh, that games are are very important because they are they are ritual forms as well, and we get our emotions and our sense of meaning so wrapped up in them because they are not so literal. So I can understand uh, that happening, saying, "Okay, this is faith, and it's important for the people who are." who are watching the game, and it means a lot to them to be mm. able to see that notion of faith. Oh, I think they're, uh, I mean, properly done, and often they are not properly done. I think uh, sports absolutely are that. And certainly, back to your notion of everyday mi- mysticism, anybody's ever experienced the sense of flow that we get, uh, you know, if you're in a groove in any sport where really your mind does begin to shut down and you, be, you become a purer thing mm-hmm. and all of your jump shots start falling or, you know, whatever it is that you're doing. I mean, it's so much there. And also in the ways that you talk about in the book, for example, uh, as you begin to explore other kinds of literature that can be sacred, something like haiku, which is, you know, um, because of the restrictions in haiku, other things happen. And I think that happens in sports, too. There's lots of things that you can and can't do in sports. But they those restrictions begin to – I mean, golf is a little bit haiku-like in certain ways. Oh, it is. To ask anyone who tries to play it, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, the limitations are very severe. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Now, so many people have mentioned that, uh, that uh, the limitations give us a certain kind of freedom. Mm-hmm. They, uh, In the sense that – uh, you would like to go somewhere. That's the intention again, you know, this ego intention. I would like to do this, but the limits are there, and they say, and the limits tell you you can't do that. Your ability isn't great enough. You don't understand what's happening enough, and therefore you have to move in another direction, and that that usually involves some kind of discovery. Mm-hmm. So yes, the limitations can be part of the of the process. One of the other phrases in the book that kind of jumped out at me, um, and I've read it in your work before, and it's also very much in the work of James Hillman, who's very much a a mentor and an influence on you, um, is you talk about – and let me just uh, precede this by saying that I think for a lot of people who are uncomfortable with religion, uh, particularly also people who feel as though their rational brains work better than religion do, there's this kind of notion that religion is a kind of artificial bliss, that it's this comforting blanket uh, of, of superstition and, and uh, reassuring myths and that they don't want that. Um, and one of the phrases that you, you talk about, the fact that you get a little tired yourself of the kind, the constant infusions of the notion of light uh, into religion and that to you – a lot of the mystery that is religion for you exists in places of darkness. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, I, I can trust the dark revelations better, the dark moments. So uh, I find as a therapist that, that most of my work is with people in very dark times. They they may have a, a compulsion that they can't deal with or an addiction or they may be trying to decide whether to be married or not. And these are really difficult, dark times. You, people would not call them moments of light. Mm-hmm. And I find that that's when people, be, their imagination turns on because that's when they have to really look so closely at what's going on. That, so that becomes an important moment in general for their religiousness because um, they're able then to to make a move somewhere with their life and not just be stuck in a rut. Whereas if you're in a place where you're talking about how great everything is and 
and being in the light and all that kind of thing, there's no movement that I can see because you don't feel the, the necessity to, to, to make discovery. You, you're happy where you are. But I think for a lot of people who, who aren't entirely in touch with what you're saying, they would say, all right, I get the thing about the fact that in the dark night of my soul, I have to make choices. I have to use my imagination. Uh, I have to see other possibilities. Uh, but I could do that in a pretty secular context. Um, why? Where's the religion part in what you're saying, Thomas More? The religion part is in the the way it connects up to your whole search for meaning for your life or to get some deeper sense of what it means to be a human being. And as we were saying before about where does this all lead, about your mortality, mm-hmm. about death. Uh, for example, someone who is trying to decide about what work to do, that might be the challenge, or whether to get d- divorced or not. This this may seem like a secular decision. I wouldn't say it is because it has to do with the very structure of your life. Where are you going? This is a, a we're talking now about making a turn in your life. Mm-hmm. That's everything. Yeah, that goes much deeper than you could ever say. And so I would say that it does touch on your religion. It is interesting, um, you know, in terms of making turns in your life too. Um, and I think the book explores this a little bit. There's such a subtle difference between a rut and a ritual, uh, and um, there are certain things that I do that I might describe as ruts, but reading your book, I'm thinking, no, actually, that's a ritual. That's actually mm-hmm. one of the things that my son and I, Every son, my son's 24, every Saturday, we usually go to this Armenian coffee shop called Cafe Sofia, and we each order lattes, and we split a crepe, and, it's, and we're like two old men who are <laughs> doing the same thing over and over again. Uh-huh. But reading the book, I thought, oh, no, that's actually, that is, if I could be said to have a religion. It's those things, right? Absolutely, those things. They're very secular. They look secular. It, the whole difference is how you look at it. Black Elk says, the Native American always says, the, the, the point is you have to look in a sacred manner. That's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So it's how you look, how you imagine and picture it, how you interpret it. That's, that's the difference. So I would say, yes, going with your son, wow, going with your son to a place regularly to have a certain kind of food, mm-hmm. if that isn't a ritual, if that isn't a kind of communion in your religion, I, would, I, mean, I, I, don't, I can't think of a better example. Um, Thomas Moore, your father died recently at the age of 100. Mm-hmm. Did you find that you had to rebuild that part of your life too, the part that was in contact with him, in dialogue with him? It's pretty clear from this book uh, he was an influence, mm-hmm. a significant influence on you. Did you have to recalibrate? Um, that's a difficult question. Mm-hmm. Um, I or is, he, or is he just sort of there pretty much the way he was? Yeah, his... His his presence to me has always been strong. Mm-hmm. I have felt him in me all the all these years. You know, it's funny because he 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 was very different from me in some ways. He was very athletic. He was a plumber. He dropped out of high school and second year of high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but on the other hand, he was a very thoughtful man and very very religious man. And uh, he w- we would have long discussions. So I miss those discussions. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I feel his presence. I know I'm still living his life in a way. So I think about him often. I, he, he, I know he told me that he used to have these dialogues with his wife, my mother, when she died. I have, these, I have dialogues with him as well. Mm. So uh, it hasn't changed a lot since he's died, no. Mm. Uh, that's a nice note to end on. Uh, the book is A Religion of One's Own. It's by Thomas Moore. Uh, I treasure these conversations. I hope you'll come back in a year or so. And... I hope so. Thank you, Colin. All right. Thanks for being with me today. 